You've survived another week. Thank you for listening, downloading, and supporting the Black Man with the Gun Show. This is episode number 575, and probably the last episode before I take a break. But it's action-packed. Five things you need to know before shooting naked. Active shooter in Annapolis, Maryland. Facts about the Declaration of Independence. We got a tactical flashlight review from Michael J. Woodland. And the American Dream by the original, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., like you've never heard it before. This is a super long episode, but I bet you, you like it. And if you're not careful, you're going to learn something. Blackmanwithagun.com Ken Blanchard's Pro-Gun Podcast I really want to hear your feedback on this episode. Let me know what you think. Mr. Wayne, please do the honors. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. One nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. You know, these days, there are a lot of folks that are out there shooting on outdoor ranges, and that is excellent. If you are still an urban shooter, you only shoot on inside ranges, you're missing out. You need to find a range where you can shoot 180 degrees if you want to. That makes all the difference in the world. It's more real-world shooting. There's it's a ease on your ears. It's a ease on your skin. It's a ease on all of you, all the way around. But speaking of all of you, you ever thought about what would happen if you were shooting naked? I mean, butt naked. Nothing. In the nation's capital, there are just so many ranges. Not There's a handful. And most of them are always occupied by those in the security guard profession getting qualified for duty. And when it's not those guys and ladies, it's the folks who pretty much shoot all the time. So when you go to the range, you take a number and you wait or you get a little pager and you wait and you finally get in. And hopefully you have your eyes and your ears and you're all ready to go. And they check your ammo and they always try to sell you ammo because it's a moneymaker. I'm not sure how much it makes, but there's three parts to it. The lead that comes out of it gets trapped to get to get that back. The brass that you leave on the ground and sweep and throw in buckets, they, they take that back. And there's always the sale of ammunition that uh, you can't shoot your ammo that you bought from LuckyGunner.com. You can't get the ammo that you got from Fiocchi. You can't get that ammo that you got from a great deal. No, you got to shoot their stuff. So you finally get your booth, you and your friend. And you guys are going to shoot a few rounds and show off and practice some stuff. But again, urban ranges, you can't shoot from the holster most of the time. You can't do a lot of drawing. You can't do a lot of tactical anything. It's static shooting. And see, if that's all you know, you don't know that you're missing out. But while you're standing there and you're getting your firearm together, in walks this 300-pound guy with no clothes on. He's hairy. He almost looks like a bear. And he's walking barefoot, walk past you to the booth next to you. And he's a huge guy, but he is butt naked. Can you see it? Everybody around him stops and goes, what the? Well, let me give you some butt naked shooting tips. Five things you should need to know before you start shooting naked. So, do you need clothes 
on to shoot a firearm. Technically, no, you don't. But to be able to enjoy the sport of shooting, you need some clothes. In the U.S., indecent exposure refers to a conduct undertaken in a non-private or, in some jurisdictions, publicly viewable location, which is deemed indecent in nature, such as nudity, etc. And such activity is often illegal. The legal definition is a given location may not be specify all activities that would be covered. Indecent exposure may also be referred to as sexual misconduct or public lewdness. Now, why did I just put down in there after I talk about being naked? Because somebody's going to try it, and I'm telling you right off the bat, it's probably illegal, and don't do it. But hypothetically, here are a few things you need to know before you shoot naked. Now, do I have your attention? What I'm talking about is wearing proper attire at the shooting range. But I thought that opening would be a lot different, a lot better, if uh, you were paying attention to me. How'd I do? You got an image in your head you can't get out of? There's a big, hairy, naked dude next to you at the range. Okay, let's move on. Let's start at the bottom. Accurate shots require a proper stance, and your feet are the foundation of that stance. So make sure that your shoes are comfortable. Don't wear sandals or any footwear that exposes your feet. Wear comfortable, supportive boots or sneakers. I've seen many of the competitive folks wearing what looks like lightweight hiking boots or chukkas. At the range, you'll spend a lot of time standing, and you will be shooting or will be near others who are shooting. So your shoes should be comfortable and closed-toed. Ladies, just in case you're on a date, you want to avoid any hot brass touching your feet. Now, that was maybe it was sexist. I don't know. But I know how sometimes guys are trying to find the perfect woman, and they're going to pick a lady who's not really, doesn't really know what to expect at the range. That's what I'm talking about. I'm referring to date night, just in case you go there. And speaking of clothes, all your clothes should be washable, if at all possible. They will be coated with gases, which include lead. And you might want to start a new routine if range shooting becomes a habit in your life. You might want to pick some clothes that you use specifically for the range. And that the same with the shoes, that you don't track the shoes with all the brass and gas and lead particles all stuck to it that you'll be tracking into your house. Your shoe choices matter because sometimes you won't be sitting. You'll be sitting on your feet or in a kneeling position or some position that may scuff up the side. So if you're uh, into shoes, make sure you have some durable ones that you don't mind getting a little nicked up on the sides, on the bottoms, on the tops, everywhere. If you perchance are shooting tactically and you're outside at an IPSC or IDPA or PPC range, you'll be running through some rocks and you want to make sure that rocks are not sticking in your toes. Even in shotgun ranges, there's generally hard concrete walkways and pads. I just got home, riding in 90-degree weather on my motorcycle, and it was hot. Likewise, the range can be hot. Temperatures entice people to wear lighter weight clothing, depending on where you're at. Staying cool can be a priority to a lot of folks. Whether you're thinking of keeping cool, don't forget about gun safety and your representation of the gun-owning community. Watch what you wear. Most indoor ranges do not have air conditioning. Some of the really nice new ones do. They're climate control. But some of the older ones, whatever it is outside, that's what's inside. If you want to know those guys and ladies that loves to wear shorts, make sure that you're aware that also hot brass and hot gravel can sometimes touch your pretty little legs. Be careful of that. Just know it. Not being afraid of it or not worrying about it makes all the difference in the world. And while we're talking about legs, 
Having some good knee pads, some tactical knee pads could be a good idea. Yeah, if you have to do kneeling position for a security guard or police training, I'd say get a pair. If you're going to do some practical pistol shooting or taking lessons from an instructor somewhere out in the Midwest where firearm freedom is a little bit better, get some knee pads. Yeah, you look like a wuss, but you'll last all day, all weekend. And while I'm there, something for your elbows ain't too bad either. You ever try to fire a shotgun from the prone position? Yeah. It's cool not to have bloody elbows. I'm just saying. So we talked about shoes and shorts and a good sturdy belt is important. Knee pads and elbow pads. Now let's go to the stuff that you always talk about. How about headgear? Not a bad idea to just have a good hat on. Not a boonie hat because you're not nom. I hate them black assault boonie caps. The folks think it look they look tactical with it. Oh, it just pisses me off. If you haven't served in any outfit anywhere in the military, do not buy one of those. You don't rate. Dang, that was a little harsh. Let me back up a little bit. You wear whatever you want. You want to protect your head. A baseball cap, it can easily prevent an injecting cartridge from striking your mug. You should already have safety glasses, but the hat is just an added layer of protection for your eyes and your face. So let me just stop my little judgmental rant there. And you wear whatever you you want to wear as long as you protect your, your mug. Because that hat, especially a baseball cap, will protect your face and your eyes. Sometimes even um, your chest, chesticles um, during the uh, shooting. I was at an indoor range one time. And there was a lady that looked like Marge Simpson. She had blue hair, actually. And she was about six foot tall. And she was shooting a forty-five on the other side of me. And I was like, wow, look at this big woman. And the rounds, the brass was ejecting, shooting high over her head and over to my side. That's how I first noticed her. Well, a couple of those shell casings landed in that blue hair and started to smolder. And whatever she got in it, it almost started a fire. True story. Um, she was patting it. She put the fire out and kept on shooting. And by this time, I was standing right behind her. So she saw me there and she just giggled and kept on shooting her 45. I thought, go ahead, mama. Do your thing, babe. Let's go back to safety glasses. Now, safety glasses are designed to stop dirt and stuff from getting into your eyes. Ballistic glasses have met the military requirement for ballistic resistance testing and the ANSI requirement for high velocity impacts. How many of you have been to the range and actually had been hit by spalding or pieces of lead fragments or stuff from the target itself? Anything can come back at you. Anything. Wood, cork, paper, brass bits, pizza, lead, and you want to protect your eyes. Protection isn't everything when it comes to safety glasses. There's the kind that wrap around. There's the kind that just look cool. Get the best that you can. Everybody looks cool in sunglasses, but if the majority of your shooting is done in an indoor range, the best kind you want are the kind that are clear so that you can see. It's a little darker than outside at an indoor range, almost always. Not sure you want the yellow ones or the the rose-colored glasses. Might make you feel better. Sometimes it can contrast, uh, make the targets pop, depending on what targets you're using. But it will decrease the light that hits your eyes. The best thing, experiment. Go find the amber ones, the red ones, the clear ones, the dark ones, and check them out for yourself. Do it before you have to qualify or in competition. Your eyesight is very important. 
back in 2008, 2009, I had my own set of uh, glasses. And I had like pop-out lenses. It was a, a bronze, amber, and there was a clear and also a yellow lens that used to pop in those things. They were hinged. Um, the style is really outdated now. But uh, those were really, really good glasses. They really hung the face and they didn't fog up. They had um, double hinges on the side. But again, that was back in the early 2000s. If anybody in my listening audience right now still has a pair of the original Black Man with a Gun glasses, I'll give you five bucks for a photo of you wearing them. That's what I'm saying. And finally, under the washer and dryer of the Blanchard Estates, we're going to cover earmuffs. And just their very nature does a better sound of blocking sound than other ear pro hearing protection. Now, the cheapest thing you can get is the foam plugs, but don't laugh at those. Those sometimes work better than anything else. Folks that care about their hair usually don't like earmuffs because it just messes them up. And also, it just plain sucks in 90 degree plus heat. Uh, that plastic foam pad around your ears always sweats. And when that sweat's dripping from your head and it hits your ears, it just feels nasty. But you got to have them because sometimes, depending on where you're shooting and how many people are out there and what the conditions are, you need to even double up with those bad boys. Some nice foam plugs and earmuffs, double duty, will save you. You want to be able to hear those tender whispers late at night. You want to be able to hear the different decibels of, of music. There are instruments that are playing that once you damage your hearing, you can't come back from. There's the muscles in your ear. There's small cartilages in your ear. And you only got one chance to keep them from being damaged. Do everything in your power to save your hearing. Back in the old days, like the 60s, the 70s, and the late 80s, folks were still just stuffing cigarette butts and cotton and even bullet cartridges in their ear at the range, especially in the military. And they are all wearing hearing aids right now. Don't be one of those people. One of the funky things happens is when you have to put your uh, eyeglasses and your muffs together. The temples of your protective eyeglasses go right over your ears, right where the earmuffs press tight against your head. And the eyeglass templates uh, sometimes are a problem. And they actually leave a space between your head and your ears that sound can get into. So make sure that the glasses that you pick work well with your muffs is what I'm saying. Now, muffs have had a comeback um, in the last couple of years. Because of technology, they, they're lighter. Um, they even have some electronic hearing protectors now. And just about everybody you see will be wearing electronic stuff. And it's cool until the batteries either start to die or something wrong. Then you get a whistle and a whine and you end up having to turn the thing off. Don't, um, don't go crazy on electronic earmuffs. They're good when you're in instructor class. When you want to hear what the instructor is saying, they're good when you're hunting. They're good if you want to make sure that you, nobody sneaks up on you. But sometimes they can be obnoxious. They can be a pain in the butt. Just saying. Don't, don't miss it. Sometimes you don't have them and you think, man, one day I'm going to get me a pair of those. You might be fine right now. You see, without hearing all the added conversation and hoopla and the occasional loud shot from behind you, you can concentrate better. And that's what the earmuffs and wearing phone plugs do. Now, phone plugs aren't perfect. They can be frustrating to get in your ears. You have to roll them up between your fingertips and stuff them in the ear canal before they can expand again. You want to make sure that your hands are clean when you do this or you're putting lead and dirt into your ear. 
and they were shooting around kids, you generally have to find plugs small enough to fit into their ears. And again, plugs don't have a long lifespan. But you can also get custom ones made. Most uh, gun shows have somebody that's selling these really high-priced phone plugs that they make custom for you, and they last a little while. And the biggest thing that matters is the noise reduction rating, the NRR, that anything that you put in your ear has. Make sure you find the highest level that's comfortable for you. The highest level of muffs, the NRR rating is what you're looking for. You can go to a place that sells lawn equipment. They've got muffs there. Look for them there. Sometimes they're cheaper than they are at a range or a gun shop. Check them out on Amazon. Amazon has a boatload of them, and they're all over the place. You won't find them in the shooting department because Amazon's not pro-gun necessarily, but they'll be there for hearing protection for other things. There's a company called Pro Show, which that's just some ghetto language right there, but that's the name of the company. And Pro Show um, sent me a pair to try out, and they're inexpensive, and they work pretty good. Yeah, it sounds ghetto, and that's how it is. Pro for show. And you can get them on Amazon in different colors, too. I think if you go to blackmanwithagun.com on our review section, you'll see them. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. And the last piece is your hands. There's quite a few folks I always see on Instagram with cuts and scrapes from all kind of things when you're shooting. Not a bad deal to think about some gloves. Blackhawk makes just about every type of glove you might need, whether you're looking for shooting gloves or tactical gloves. What's the difference between shooting and tactical? Well, shooting gloves cover and protect your hands and often offer a little padding and reinforcement. Tactical gloves tend to be over the top. They, They look like biker gloves that you would use for motocross. Some have Kevlar and are cut resistant. Some have Nomex for fire. There's even some of the reinforced knuckles, like I said, for motocross. In case you got to punch somebody in the face during a gunfight. But for most of us, you need some gloves that protect your hands and maybe line with fleece for cold weather protection. You know, your mileage may vary. But if you're thinking about buying some gear, think about some gloves. Say you take a tactical class, AR-15, and you're with a whole bunch of operators. They'll have theirs. See what they're wearing. Ask them what works, what's good about it. Sometimes you lose some feeling. You won't be able to feel that pad on your finger when you're, trigger, when you're pulling a trigger. You, you're used to shooting a different way. Sometimes your firearms are not made for the gloves. Most of them are now, but maybe you have an older type firearm. You got to check all that stuff. Maybe you got big paws and gloves just don't work with you, but you won't know unless you try. Okay. For the last few minutes, I tried to add some stuff to your mind to, to wear better protective clothing to make sure you dress for the way you are, dress for success, and uh, disregard that naked guy that's shooting. He'll be arrested soon for lewdness and sexual misconduct, most likely. Unless it's one of those holidays where they're pushing a rainbow flag around. But then again, I doubt there's a range in that area. Lord help us. A few years ago, a friend of mine started this thing called the United States Concealed Carry Association. It's an education, training, and self-defense insurance company now. It's for responsible gun owners. You can get complete peace of mind when you join USCCA today. If you carry a gun for self-defense, you need this. It's a whole package, education, training, and self-defense insurance. Call my friend. The number is one 877 
And if you missed that, go to the link at blackmailthegun.com for USCCA. Hey, this is Tom Gresham from Gun Talk Radio, and you're listening to the Black Man with a Gun Show. Yes, you are. Next up, my friend and brother from another mother, Michael J. Woodland. Big Mike, take it away. Thank you, Ken, and welcome to another Tips and Review segment. I am Michael Woodland, and today we're going to discuss flashlights. If you listen to the show regularly, we have discussed shooting positions, breathing, trigger manipulation, and even some competition shooting. Have you ever considered having a flashlight to be part of your EDC? Some might laugh, but... Let's think about this in a way that the KISS concept comes into play. What if you leave your house at 1000 hours or 10 a.m. and do not return until 0200 hours or 2 a.m. the following morning? But now let's throw in the possible ambush or attack in a situation where it's dark. Now, does having a flashlight makes more sense? Let's talk about a flashlight I carry every day and various options you have with different models from Enforce. Enforce is a company who added value to the illumination game by making their products more ideal for the everyday user, whether it be for the handheld, the handgun mounted, or rifle mounted flashlights. Here in the near future, I will be purchasing an Enforce light for my handgun and my AR rifle, but right now I have the handheld TFX model. The TFX is a light that brings a lot of options to your EDC with the various benefits it gives the user. A handheld flashlight that projects 700 lumens in high mode and 60 lumens in low mode. That's two vast options that can help out in any situation from hunting or while conducting work as a law enforcement officer or military. The TFX is handheld and small enough to fit in your pocket and only weighs 3.75 ounces and even waterproof up to 66 feet. The TFX model has three different modes of use from constant, momentary, and strobe. For those who are not tracking what the different modes are, let's break them down. The constant feature is when the power button is pressed, the light comes on and stays on until you decide to hit the power button again. The momentary feature comes on when you press and continue to hold the power button. After you release the button, the light goes off. Finally, the strobe mode. Give the power button two quick presses and the strobe feature is activated with a rapid on and off for the effect. Remember, I stated this flashlight projects 700 lumens and 60 lumens in the constant mode. Once you press the power button and release it, the brighter mode is displayed until you press the power button again to project the 60 lumens mode. This light is a game changer, and to let you know, it will not break the bank. All their lights are reasonably priced for the everyday American. The reinforced polymer body for high impact and durability shows the design was intended for the toughest battles, even down to the knurled body and tail cap to give a non-slip grip. For the power output, It uses two lithium CR123A batteries and has a constant runtime of two hours on the 700 lumens setting and 12 hours on the 60 lumens setting. Check out the various models Enforce has to offer at Enforce 
www.edc-mill.com and go out and get one for your EDC or everyday carry. Just wish I was introduced to this line of flashlights when I was in the military, but we'll be getting one for my AR rifle next. For those who are looking to contact me, visit blackmanwiththegun.com and under the about tab, click on my name, Michael Woodland, and shoot me an email or a phone call. Please leave a voicemail or text message, and I promise I will get back to you. Until next week, keep shooting, keep practicing, and have fun. Back to you, Ken. Crossbreed holsters are some of the finest holsters in America. They are imitated for a reason. They sell holsters, belts, modular systems. The U.S. company that my friend Mark Craig had started in 2005 has been a supporter for you and I for almost a decade. Crossbreed Holsters has raised the standard for customer service in the holster industry through its two-week try-it-free guarantee and a lifetime warranty. You tried the rest, now get the best. Go to CrossbreedHolsters.com and tell them Ken sent you. CrossbreedHolsters.com In the news this week, a gunman blasted his way into the Capitol Gazette newsroom in Annapolis, Maryland, with a shotgun Thursday afternoon, killing five people. Journalists dived under their desk and pleaded for help on social media. One reporter described the scene as a war zone. A photographer said he jumped over a dead colleague and fled for his life. The victims are identified as Rob Hyacin, 59, a former feature writer for the Baltimore Sun, who joined the Capitol Gazette in 2010 as an assistant editor and columnist. Wendy Winters, 65, a community correspondent who headed special publications. Gerald Fishman, 61, an editorial page editor. John McNamara, 56, a staff writer who had covered high school, college, and professional sports for decades. And Rebecca Smith, 34, a sales assistant hired in November. Two others were injured in the attack that began about 2.40 p.m. at the Capitol Gazette offices on 888 Bestgate Road in Annapolis. Police took a suspect into custody soon after the shootings. He was identified as Jared W. Ramos, a 38-year Laurel man with a long-standing grudge against the paper. Ramos was charged with five counts of first-degree murder, according to online court records. He did not have an attorney listed. A bail review hearing was set for Friday. Many of the folks that were wounded that didn't die were injured because of glass. And it's also I, I was told that uh, Ramos hid under a table to pretend like he was one of the victims, but he was quickly found out. Please note that these murderers are evolving. Their tactics are changing. So as such, you should change your tactics as well. Hi, this is Ken Blanchard, host of MotorcycleTalk.us. If you ride motorcycles, I would like to invite you to join our community online and listen to our podcast where I interview interesting people, learn about gear, rides, and share experiences. Listen to the leader. MotorcycleTalk.us Now available on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and on the website. MotorcycleTalk.us Well, around the world, at every American embassy and here in the United States, 
will be celebrating America's Independence Day on the 4th of July. Now, here's some interesting facts about the Declaration of Independence. We think of July 4th, 1776 as the day that represents the Declaration of Independence and the birth of the United States of America as an independent nation. That's what we're celebrating, even though some folks don't want to celebrate that these days. We are so free. We are also free to self-destruct. I'm just saying. And for my friends, my brothers and sisters who don't want to stand for the flag, who don't want to celebrate our Independence Day, I suggest you think about it for a minute. Think about the freedom that you enjoy. That was done over years. Nothing that we have today has come automatically. Nothing has come without bloodshed. Nothing has come without change and growing pains as a nation, as a people, as a culture. We aren't perfect, but we're the best thing and the closest thing to it. So July 4th wasn't the day that the Continental Congress decided to declare independence. They did that on July 2nd, 1776. It wasn't the day we started the American Revolution either. That happened back in April 1775. And it wasn't the day Thomas Jefferson wrote the first draft of Declaration of Independence. That was in June 1776. Or the date which the Declaration was delivered to Great Britain. That didn't happen until November of 1776. Nor was it the date that was signed. That was actually August the 2nd. 1776. So what did happen on July 4th, 1776? The Continental Congress approved the final wording of the Declaration of Independence on July 4th, 1776. They've been working on it for a couple of days after the draft was submitted on July 2nd and finally agreed on all the edits and changes. July 4th, 1776 became the date that was included on the Declaration of Independence and the fancy handwritten copy that was signed in August. The copy now displayed on the National Archives in Washington, D.C. It's also the date that was printed on the Dunlap broadsides, the original printed copies of the Declaration that were cir- circulated around the new nation. So, when people thought of the Declaration of Independence, July 4th, 1776 was the date they remembered. In contrast, we celebrate Constitution Day on September 17th of each year, the anniversary of the date the Constitution was actually signed not the anniversary of the day it was approved. If we follow the same approach for the Declaration of Independence, we'd be celebrating Independence Day in August on the 2nd of each year, the day that the Declaration of Independence was actually signed. So how did it become a holiday, a national holiday? Well, for the first 15 or 20 years after the Declaration was written, people didn't celebrate it much. It was too new and too much else was happening in this new young nation. There were some issues. Of course. Slavery. How can we forget that? Lynchings and wars and rumors of wars and folks trying to make homesteads out west and new states and new nations and new territories and a lot was going on. By the 1790s, the time of bitter partisan conflicts and declaration had become controversial. One party the Democratic Republicans admired Jefferson and the Declaration, but the other party, the Federalists, thought that the Declaration was too French and too anti-British, which went against their current policies. By 1817, John Adams complained in a letter that America seemed uninterested in his past, but that would soon change. After the War of 1812, the Federalist Party began to come apart and the new parties of the 1820s and the 1830s all considered themselves inheritors of Jefferson and the Democratic Republicans. 
printed copies of the Declaration began to circulate again, all with the date July 4th, 1776, listed on the top. The deaths of Thomas Jefferson and John Adams on July 4th, 1826, may even have helped to promote the idea of July 4th as an important date to be celebrated. Celebrations of the 4th of July became even more common as the years went on, and in 1870, almost 100 years after the Declaration was written, Congress first declared July 4th to be a national holiday as part of a bill to officially recognize several holidays, including Christmas. Further legislation about national holidays, including July 4th, was passed in 1939 and 1941. Can I get you to hold on for just a little bit longer? This July 4th, I want to take you back to 1965 to Ebenezer Baptist Church, to a man who has inspired this nation. He gave a sermon on July 4th, 1965, called The American Dream. Because of my love of history and you, I want to share with you the words of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., as only we do here on the Black Man with a Gun show. You've made a difference in my life. I'm hoping I'm making a difference in yours. Dr. King's message is about 44 minutes long. I'm telling you this so that you can either prepare to listen to it in, in its entirety or save it for later. But I want to take you back to the Church of Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia, that was founded in 1886. Ladies and gentlemen, friends and family, I give you the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. I would like to discuss some of the problems that we confront in the world today and some of the problems that we confront in our own nation by using as a subject the American dream. And I choose this subject because America is essentially a dream. It is a dream of a land where men of all races, of all nationalities, and of all creeds can live together as brothers. The substance of the dream is expressed in these sublime words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now we notice in the very beginning that at the center of this dream is an amazing universalism. It does not say some men, but it says all men. It does not say all white men, but it says all men, which includes black men. It does not say all 
Gentiles, but it says all men, which includes Jews. It does not say all Protestants, but it says all men, which includes Catholics. And that is something else that we notice in this American dream, which is one of the things that distinguishes our form of government with some of the other totalitarian systems. It says that each individual has certain inherent rights that are neither derived from or conferred by the state. They are gifts from the hands of the Almighty God. Very seldom, if ever, in the history of the world has a socio-political document expressed in such profound, eloquent, and unequivocal language the dignity and the worth of human personality. For the American dream reminds us that every man is the heir of a legacy of worthfulness. But ever since the founding fathers of our nation dreamed this dream, America has been something of a schizophrenic personality. On the one hand, we have proudly professed the noble principles of democracy. On the other hand, we have sadly practiced the very antithesis of those principles. Indeed, slavery and segregation have been strange paradoxes in a nation founded on the principle that all men are created equal. But now more than ever before, America is challenged to realize its noble dream. For the shape of the world today does not permit us the luxury of an anemic democracy. And the price, price that the United States must pay for the continued exploitation and oppression of the Negro and other minority groups is the price of its own destruction. That are approximately 2,700,000,000 people in the world. The vast majority of these people live in Asia and Africa. For years, most of these people have been dominated politically, exploited economically, segregated and humiliated by some foreign power. Today, they are gaining their independence. More than 1,600,000,000 of the former 1,900,000,000 colonial subjects have their independence today. And they are saying in no uncertain terms that racism and colonialism must go. So in a real sense, our hour is late. And the clock of destiny is ticking out. We must act now before it is too late. It is trite but urgently true 
that if America is to remain a first-class nation, she can no longer have second-class citizens. I must rush on to say that we must not seek to solve this problem merely to meet the communist challenge. We must not seek to do it merely to appeal to Asian and African peoples. In the final analysis, racial discrimination must be uprooted from our society because it is morally wrong. It must be done because segregation stands against all of the noble precepts of our Judeo-Christian heritage. It must be done because segregation substitutes an I-it relationship for the I-thou relationship and ends up relegating persons to the status of things. So this problem must be solved not merely because it is diplomatically expedient, but because it is morally compelling. So every person of goodwill in this nation is called upon to work passionately and unrelentingly to realize the American dream, and the persons who are working to do this are not dangerous agitators, they are not dangerous rabble-rousers, but they are the persons working to save the soul of America. And I would like to suggest some things that we must do in order to realize this great dream. First, we must begin with a world perspective. For we will not be able to realize the American dream until we work to realize the world dream. The world dream for peace and brotherhood and goodwill. The world in which we live is geographically one. Now we are challenged to make it spiritually one. Now it is true that the geographical oneness of this age in which we live was brought into being to a large extent through man's scientific ingenuity. Man, through his scientific genius, has been able to dwarf distance and place time in chains. Yes, he's been able to carve highways through the stratosphere. And our jet planes have compressed into minutes distances that once took days. I think Bob Hope has adequately described this new jet age in which we live, and it is not the usual thing for a preacher to be quoting Bob Hope, but I think he has adequately described this new jet age. He said it is an age in which it is possible to take a non-stop flight from Los Angeles to New York, and if on taking off in Los Angeles you develop hiccups, you will hick in Los Angeles and cup in New York City. <laughs> you know, it is possible because of the time difference to take a flight from Tokyo on Sunday morning and arrive in Seattle, Washington on the preceding Saturday night, and when your friends meet you at the airport and ask uh, when you left Tokyo, you will have to say, I left tomorrow. 
That's the kind of age in which we live. Now, this is a bit humorous, but I'm trying to laugh a basic fact into all of us, and it is simply this, that through our scientific genius, we have made of this world a neighborhood. Now, through our moral and ethical commitment, we must make of it a brotherhood. We must all learn to live together as brothers, or we will all perish together as fools. Every individual must learn this, Every nation must learn this. Every nation must realize its dependence on other nations. Some months ago, Mrs. King and I journeyed to that great country known as India. And I never will forget the experience. I never will forget many of the conversations, experience to talk with the great leaders of India, and to meet people in the cities and the villages throughout that nation will remain dear to me as long as the cords of memory shall lengthen. But I must say to you this evening that there were those depressing moments. How can one avoid being depressed when he sees with his own eyes millions of people going to bed hungry at night? How can one avoid being depressed when he sees with his own eyes millions of people sleeping on the sidewalks at night? In Calcutta alone, more than a million people sleep on the sidewalks every night. They have no beds to sleep in. They have no houses to go in. How can one avoid being depressed when he discovers that out of India's population of 400 million people, more than 370 million make an annual income of less than $60 a year. Most of these people have never seen a doctor or a dentist. As I noticed these conditions, something within me cried out. We in America stand idly by and not be concerned. An answer came, oh no. Because the destiny of the United States is tied up with the destiny of India. I started thinking of the fact that here in America we spend more than a million dollars a day to store surplus food. I said to myself, I know where we can store that food free of charge. In the wrinkled stomachs of the millions of people all over the world who go to bed hungry at night. Maybe we've spent far too much of our money establishing military bases around the world rather than bases of genuine concern and understanding. All I'm saying is simply this, that all life is interrelated. We are tied in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly, it affects all indirectly. Long as that is extreme poverty in this world, no one can be totally rich even if he has a billion dollars. As long as diseases are rampant and millions of people cannot expect to live more than 28 or 30 years, no one can be totally healthy even if he just got a checkup in the finest clinic of the nation. Strangely enough, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. 
You can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. John Donne caught it years ago and placed it in graphic terms. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. And he goes on toward the end to say any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. Therefore, never sin to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. We must come to see this if we are to realize the American dream. The next thing that must be done, we must get rid of the notion once and for all that they are superior and inferior races. Somehow this notion still lingers with us. We must make it palpably clear and a doctrine of white supremacy is both rationally absurd and morally unjustifiable. Now certainly this has been pointed out by authorities and scholars. It has been pointed out by the anthropological sciences. Ruth Benedict, Margaret Mead, Melvin Herskovitz and others have made it clear that there are no superior races. There may be superior and inferior individuals academically within all races, but no superior or inferior races. But somehow there are four types of blood and they are found in all races. But in spite of this, the notion still lingers. There was a time that people tried to justify racial inferiority on the basis of the Bible and religion. And so someone could argue that the Negro is inferior by nature because of Noah's curse upon the children of Ham. Paul's dictum became a watchword, servants be obedient to your master. And then there was one brother who had probably read the logic of Aristotle. Aristotle used to deal with the syllogism, which had a major premise, a minor premise, and a conclusion. And one brother put his argument in the framework of an Aristotelian syllogism. He could say all men are made in the image of God. This was the major premise. And then came the minor premise. God, as everybody knows, is not a Negro. Therefore, the Negro is not a man. This was the type of reasoning that was used at that time to justify the inferiority of the Negro. But now it isn't done so much on on the biblical and uh, religious ground, it's something else. It's argued on subtle sociological and cultural grounds. So we hear these things from time to time. The Negro is not culturally ready for integration. And of course, if you integrate the schools and if you integrate public facilities, the Negro will pull the white race back a generation. And then there are those who go on to argue that the Negro is a criminal. He is innately a criminal, they would say. He lags behind in all of his standards. So they use these subtle sociological arguments to say that integration should take place a hundred years from now. You must lift these standards, they would argue. 
Well, the only answer that we can give is that there, if there are lagging standards in the Negro community, they lag because of segregation and discrimination. We must say to them that poverty, ignorance, and disease breed crime, whatever the racial group may be. These things are environmental and not racial. And it is a torturous logic to use the tragic results of segregation as an argument for the continuation of it thing to do is to get rid of the causal basis. So we must get rid of the notion once and for all if we are to realize the American dream that there are superior and inferior races. And I think we already have numerous and inspiring examples of Negroes who have demonstrated that human nature cannot be cataloged, who have successfully refuted the myth of racial inferiority, in spite of the fact that the Negro has had to walk through the long and desolate night of oppression, he has risen up so often to plunge against cloud-filled nights of affliction, new and blazing stars of inspiration. So from an old slave cabin of Virginia's hill, Booker T. Washington rose up to be one of America's great leaders. He lit a torch in Alabama and darkness fled from the red hills of Gordon County, Georgia. An iron foundry of Chattanooga, Tennessee, in the arms of a mother who could neither read nor write. Roland Hayes rose up to be one of the world's great singers carried his melodious voice into the palace of King George V, the mansion of Queen Mother of Spain, from a poverty-stricken area to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Marin Anderson rose up to be the world's greatest contralto, so that a Toscanini could say that a voice like this comes only once in a century. And Sibelius of Finland could say, my roof is too low for such a voice. Crippling circumstances, George Washington Carver rose up and carved for himself an imperishable niche in the annals of science. There was a star in the sky of female leadership. And then came Mary McLeod Bethune, and she grabbed it and allowed it to shine in her life with all of its radiant beauty. There was a star in the diplomatic sky. Then came Ralph Bunch, the grandson of a slave preacher, and allowed it to shine in his life in beautiful terms. And all of these people have revealed that the myth of racial inferiority cannot stand. They have justified the conviction of the poet, fleecy locks and black complexion cannot forfeit nature's claim. Skin may differ, but affection dwells in black and white the same. Why so tall as to reach the pole, or to grasp the ocean at a span? I must be measured by my soul. The mind is the standard of the man. And so we are challenged to get rid of the notion once and for all that they are inferior and superior races. If the American dream is to be a reality, we must continue 
to engage in creative protest in order to break down those barriers which make it impossible for us to realize the American dream. Now we must get rid of two false ideas in order to continue to engage in creative protest. One idea is the myth of time. There are those people who argue that time alone will solve this problem. And so they say you must not push things. You must be patient, you must sit down and wait, and sometimes they decorate it in even larger terms. They say cool off for a while and slow up for a while. Time is the only thing that can solve this problem. What we must come to see is that evolution is true in the biological realm. So Darwin is right at that point. But when a Herbert Spencer seeks to apply it to the whole of society, that is little evidence for it. Human progress never rolls in on the wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts and the persistent work of dedicated individuals. And without this hard work, time itself becomes the ally of the insurgent and primitive forces of irrational emotionalism and social stagnation so that we must somehow get rid of this idea that time alone will solve the problem. We must use time. Another idea is the idea, the myth of what I call educational determinism. It is the idea that only education will solve this problem. I'm sure you've heard this, that you've got to change the hearts of people and people must be educated to the point that they will change their attitudes. Now, there's some truth in this. But to say this is the only thing is where we develop the myth. It is not either education or legislation. It is both education and legislation. Now, it may be true that you cannot uh, legislate morality. It may be true that morality cannot be legislated, but behavior can be regulated. It may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me. And I think that's pretty important also. Uh, this is what we seek to do through the law, to control the external effects of bad internal feelings. Religion and education will have to change the attitudes. But legislation, executive orders, uh, judicial decrees will have to control the external effects of bad internal attitudes. And therefore, if we are to realize the American dream, we must continue to work through legislation. So it is necessary for Congress to pass meaningful legislation. It is needed at this present hour, even though the president of our nation does not feel that additional legislation is needed in civil rights, I must respectfully disagree with him. There is need this year, at this hour, for stronger civil rights legislation. Then we must continue to urge the president of the nation to issue executive orders to do away with these barriers. Then we must continue to work through the courts to gain judicial decrees so that these things 
will be changed. And added to this must be the method of nonviolent direct action. And I am more convinced every day that the most potent weapon available to oppressed people in their struggle for freedom and human dignity is this weapon of nonviolent resistance. It brings with it many important aspects. It has certain practical consequences which are very important. It has a way of disarming the opponent, exposing his moral defenses, weakening his morale, and at the same time working on his conscience. And so he doesn't know exactly how to handle this method. If he puts you in jail, that's all right. If he doesn't put you in jail, that's all right. If he beats you, you accept that. If he doesn't beat you, you accept that. If he tries to kill you, you develop the quiet courage of dying, if necessary, without killing. And so he soon discovers that that is no answer for it. And also it has with it certain moral aspects. It makes it possible for the individual or the group to secure moral ends through moral means. One of the big problems in history been this discussion of ends and means. There have been those who argued that the end justifies the means. So they have the idea that sometimes or somehow destructive means are, can bring about constructive ends. And systems of government have come into being with this theory. Sometimes they would argue that the end of the classless society justifies using violence and deceit in any other method. Nonviolent resistance breaks with communism or any other method that would say the end justifies the means. In the long run of history, destructive means cannot justify constructive ends because the end is pre-existent in the means. And so this method has certain moral aspects that go along with the practical. Then it is based on the great ethical principle of love. Now, people ask me so often, what in the world do you mean when you say to us, love these people who are trying to destroy us and these people who are trying to defeat us? What do you mean? How can you love people like this? Now, I always have to pause and try to give the meaning of love in the area of human relations. Unfortunately, the Greek language comes to our aid at this point. There are three words in the Greek language for love. There's the word eros. This is a sort of aesthetic love. Plato talks about it a great deal in his dialogues, the yearning of the soul for the realm of the divine. It has come to us to be a sort of a romantic love. Romantic love is a phase of eros, and so we all know about eros. We've experienced it. We've lived with it. We've read about it in all of the beauties of literature. In a sense, Edgar Allan Poe was talking about eros when he talked of his beautiful Annabelle Lee with a love surrounded by the halo of eternity. In a sense, Shakespeare was speaking of eros when he said, Love is not love which alters when its alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. It is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempest and is never shaken. 
It is a star to every wandering bark. You know, I can remember that because I used to quote it to my wife when we were quoting. That's uh, Eros. The Greek language talks about phileo, which is a, which is a sort of uh, reciprocal love. Uh, it is a love, uh, an intimate affection between personal friends and so on this level. You love because you are loved. You love people that you like. This is friendship. Then the Greek language comes out with another word. It is the word agape. Agape is more than romantic love. Agape is more than friendship. Agape is understanding, creative, redemptive goodwill for all men. It is an overflowing love which seeks nothing in return. Theologians would say that it is the love of God operating in the human heart. At any rate, when one rises to love on this level, he loves men not because he likes them, not because their ways appeal to him. But he loves every man because God loves him, and he rises to the point of loving the person who does the evil deed while hating the deed that the person does. And I believe that this is a type of expression of love that can guide us through this period of transition. This is the power of the non-violent resistance approach. It has practical consequences. It is based on high and noble moral and ethical principles. So the individual who follows this method stands up before the opponent and says, we will match our capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. So do to us what you will and we will still love you. Put us in jail and we will go in with humble smiles on our faces. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities at the midnight hours. Drag us out on some wayside road and beat us and leave us half dead and we will still love you. Threaten our children. Bomb our homes. And do all of the things of violence that you think will defeat our movement and we will still love you. Send your propaganda agents around the country and make it appear that we are not fit morally culturally otherwise for integration, and we will still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer, and one day we will win our freedom. We will not only win freedom for ourselves, we will so appeal to your heart and your conscience that we will win you in the process, and therefore our victory will be a double victory. It seems to me that this is the way. This approach to the problem is not without successful precedent. Mohandas K. Gandhi used it in India in a magnificent manner. Free his people from the political domination, the economic exploitation that had been inflicted upon them for years. He achieved this victory by using only the weapons of soul force non-injury, courage, and moral principles. Negro students of the South have used it in a marvelous manner to stand up against the principalities of segregation.
Let them know that the hundreds of people who've gone into jail in Jackson, Mississippi, have gone into jail in order to get America out of the dilemma that she finds herself in as a result of the continued existence of segregation and discrimination. And also let them know that anybody who lives in the United States must be concerned about this problem. And so people who live in New York or in California or in Illinois have an obligation to be concerned about this problem, and whoever lives inside the United States cannot be considered an outside agitator because this problem is the concern of every individual in this nation. And injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Therefore, this method has worked in many dimensions in our day and in our generation. This method of nonviolent resistance, God grant that as we go on with this struggle, working with determination to realize the American dream, that we will delve deeper into the meaning of nonviolence. And I believe firmly that it will help us to go into the new age with the right attitude. We will not seek to rise from a position of disadvantage to one of advantage thus subverting justice by adhering to this method. All of the Negro people of the United States and all of the colored people of the world will seek democracy for everybody. They will not seek to substitute one tyranny for another. But I am convinced that black supremacy is as dangerous as white supremacy. God is not interested merely in the freedom of black men and brown men and yellow men. God is interested in the freedom of the whole human race, the creation of a society where all men can live together as brothers and every man will respect the dignity and the worth of human personality. And also following this method, we may be able to teach this world something that it so desperately needs to learn in this hour. But in a day when Sputniks and explorers are dashing throughout a space, and guided ballistic missiles are carving highways of death through the stratosphere. No nation can win a war. It is no longer the choice between violence and nonviolence. It is now either nonviolence or non-existence. By following this method right here in this nation, maybe somehow Russia in the United States will come to see this and move on toward disarmament and suspension of nuclear tests on a permanent basis, the setting up of an international police force through the UN, and thereby make brotherhood and peace a reality. This is what we must do in order to realize the American dream. I believe if we will follow these things, we will be able to bring that day into being. But it will not come until every individual in our nation develops this type of concern. And may I say, as I move toward my conclusion, this is not just a local problem. Both people who live in New York or in California or in Illinois have an obligation to be concerned about this problem, and whoever lives in this recording is briefly interrupted at this point. Boast of clean hands in the area of brotherhood.
we still confront segregation in its glaring and conspicuous forms in Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, Louisiana, and all over the South. We still confront it in its hidden and subtle forms in Illinois, in California, in Pennsylvania, and even in New York. If democracy is to live, segregation must die. And we need people all over America who are genuine liberals. It is one thing to rise up with righteous indignation when a Negro is lynched in Mississippi or when a bus is burned in Anniston, Alabama. The person of goodwill will rise up with as much righteous indignation when a Negro cannot live in his neighborhood because he's a Negro. When a Negro cannot join his professional society or cannot be a member of his fraternity or sorority. When a Negro cannot get a position in his firm because he happens to be a Negro. In other words, there must be a concern on the part of people all over this country. And this is the way we will solve this problem. There are words that we use in every academic discipline and Pretty soon these words become a part of the technical nomenclature of these particular disciplines. Modern psychology has a word that is probably used more than any other word in psychology. It is the word maladjusted. Maladjusted. Certainly we all want to live the well-adjusted life in order to avoid neurotic personalities. I say to you this evening that there are some things in our social order to which I'm proud to be maladjusted. I call upon men of goodwill all over the nation to be maladjusted until the good society is a reality. I never intend to adjust myself to the evils of segregation and discrimination. I never intend to become adjusted to religious bigotry. I never intend to adjust myself to economic conditions that will take necessities from the many to give luxuries to the few. I never intend to become adjusted to the madness of militarism and the self-defeating effects of physical violence. And I think the hour has come for men all over the nation and all over the world to be maladjusted to all of these things. For it may well be that the salvation of our world lies in the hands of the maladjusted. So if you will allow the preacher in me to come out now, let us be maladjusted. Maladjusted is the prophet Amos, who in the midst of the injustices of his day could cry out in words that echo across the centuries. Let justice run down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Maladjusted as Abraham Lincoln, who had the vision to see that this nation could not exist half slave and half free. Maladjusted as Thomas Jefferson, who in the midst of an age amazingly adjusted to slavery, could cry out in words lifted to cosmic proportions. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. As maladjusted as Jesus of Nazareth, Say, love your enemies, bless them that curse you. Pray for them that despitefully use you. And I believe that the world is in desperate need of such maladjustment. 
With such maladjustment, we will be able to emerge from the bleak and desolate midnight of man's inhumanity to man into the bright and glittering daybreak of freedom and justice. And as we struggle to realize the American dream, let us realize that we do not struggle alone. Even though there are the difficult days ahead, even though before the victory is won, somebody else will have to get scarred up, somebody else will have to go to jail, maybe some will have to face physical death. Before the victory is won, some will be misunderstood, called bad names, be dismissed as dangerous rabble-rousers and agitators. Even in the midst of that, the struggle must go on knowing that the victory can be won because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. I am convinced that there is something in this universe which justifies Carlisle in saying no lie can live forever. There is something in the very core of the cosmos which justifies William Cullen Bryant in saying truth crushed earth will rise again. There is something in this universe justifies James Russell Lowell in saying truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future. And so with this faith in the future, we will be able to adjourn the councils of despair and rise from the fatigue of darkness to the buoyancy of hope. And we will be able to bring into being this new society and realize the American dream. This will be the day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Thank you for letting me share that. I know you won't hear that on any other podcast anywhere else in the world, but you're the cool people in the gun community, and you get it. Let's celebrate the 4th of July together. Let's celebrate our freedom as Americans, because here we do stand hand in hand, shoulder to shoulder, black man and white man, Catholic and Protestant, Jew and Gentile, man and woman, and we get it, don't we? Can I get an amen, somebody? This concludes this week's show, and I want to thank you for listening, downloading, and subscribing to the Black Man with a Gun Show podcast. Just in case nobody has told you this today, I love you, and not a damn thing you can do about it. God continue to bless America. Shalom, baby.
To keep in touch with Ken and his cause, head over to blackmanwithagun.com. 